brought to you by Prep Matters and the book, What Do You Say? How to Talk with Kids to Build Motivation, Stress Tolerance, and a Happy Home. How important are standardized tests? Why isn't my child doing well in school? Do you need a high school diploma to apply to Harvard? Education is one of our most cherished institutions, but it can also be one of our most exasperating. And it's where almost all of our children go from toddlers learning their ABCs to critically thinking adults stepping out into the world. I talk with experts in helping teens and tweens navigate the transition to adulthood in order to bring you the tools you need to help grow resilient, self-driven, and successful young adults. I'm Ned Johnson, and this is Prep Talks. Dr. Madeline Levine, PhD, is a psychologist with over 35 years of experience as a clinician, consultant, educator, and author. She's the author of multiple New York Times bestsellers, including The Price of Privilege and Teach Your Children Well, that tackle the emotional challenges facing our young people. Her latest book, Ready or Not, focuses on helping parents prepare their children to thrive in an unpredictable and rapidly changing world. Dr. Levine provides practical solutions to parents so that they can help their children be prepared for their certain to be uncertain future. Dr. Levine is also the co-founder of Challenge Success, a program at the Stanford University Graduate School of Education that focuses on providing parents and schools with the tools they need to raise healthy, motivated kids in a fast-paced world with a narrow and increasingly outdated definition of success. Welcome. Thank you, Ned. Pleasure I'm, to be here. Oh, I'm so happy to talk about your book. There's so much in here and there's no way we're going to cover all because even I don't talk that fast. <laughs> but let's start with, can you just give us a, a thumbnail sketch of why did you originally write this book? Because you had so much wisdom in the first two books, but obviously things keep on changing. You had more to share with us. Yeah. And the reason I wrote it, and you know this well, there is a cadre of people out there, myself, you, dozens of us who have been trying for, well, I'm a lot older than you, but have been trying for 20 years to bring the message that this singular focus on grades and performance is not, is not the best childhood to have, right? Mm -hmm. And while I felt like we certainly impacted individuals and school communities, um, the, the reality was for the country, rates were not going down of anxiety, depression, substance abuse, cutting, eating disorders, they were going up. So I felt like, you know, I had this really interesting choice after spending 20 years kind of on the road mm. doing this of saying, well, who, why is this not working generally in the country? What is hard about the message? And who knows more about it than, <laughs> psychologists and educators, maybe people right in the middle of change, you know? So mm -hmm. I, went, I went to the military, I went to CEOs of corporations, but the, the most important part of this story is a very personal one, which is 
um, so it's about six years ago, and I needed to remortgage my house. So I go to the bank, and my youngest son, Jeremy, who is then about 19, says, can I come with you? And I said, sure. And we go, and he sits down, and he's just being Jeremy, which is uh, three boys. You know, he's just like the kindest, most aware of what's going on around mm -hmm. him, kid. And over the course of the hour, hour and a half, I'm in with the head of the mortgage department for some mm -hmm, reason. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and she um, is just talking to me. She's not talking to him at all. And he's just being himself. So he's looking at his watch and saying, hey, Ma, the meter is almost over. Can I put a quarter in for you? He does that twice. Um, and at one point, you know, my voice is always scratchy from yakking so much. So he said, I saw there was some tea and honey, can I get you a cup of tea? And I said, uh. that's great. And he turned to the woman that at the department and said, would you like a cup of tea? Three things in the course of maybe an hour 20. At the end of it, I get my mortgage. She turns to my son and says, I want to hire you. <laughs> and and but dead serious. I, I love it. No, I laugh it because I love it. And and you can imagine that I'm like, what? She knows nothing about him. Whether <sighs> he's gone to college or hasn't gone to college or cares about banking or nothing. So, you know, I'm kind of taken by this. And I said, you know, you don't know anything about my son. Why would you offer him a job? And she said, because I can teach him the logistics of the banking industry, the facts of the banking mm -hmm. industry. I can't teach him to be that person who notices what's going on. He's the one I want sitting next to me in my office, which is eventually what he did. And then he found he hated banking so much that he became a lawyer. But it was a personal experience of everything that I was hearing out in doing the research for Ready or Not. Uh, Gorman, the, the CEO of Morgan Stanley, Peter Norvig, who is the head of research at Google. I mean, people who were in the middle of change were all saying the same thing, that the skill set that we unfortunately sometimes label soft, and mm -hmm. I hate that, so I call it foundational, mm -hmm. that is the skill set that people are looking for. And I saw, you know, I got to see it in real life. So that was why I started the book. I love it. And, you know, and that, that point about change is one that you come back to over and over in, in ways that I think they're really helpful to all of us to as kind of a framework because it's such a source of anxiety. And uh, as you're kind of alluding to here, the focus on, you know, quote unquote, hard skills to give kids everything that we think they need to know um, prepares them only for, for the moment, but not for the multiplicities of, of possible futures. And, and when we don't have any idea which of those will, will pop up. Um, you make the point that, that, you know, we've always had change, right? But that we seem to be living in a time with increasing change, you know, because you, you, you say early in the book that anxiety is nothing new, but right. that it feels more now, more emergent than ever. Can you talk a little bit about why that, why that seems to be the case? Sure. And, and I just want to respond to something you said earlier when you said, you know, ch change will be in everybody's life and mm. challenge and difficulty. Um, and the last talk I gave before lockdown was at uh, Burke School here in San Francisco mm. and had about 500 people in the audience, big audience. And at one point I asked how many people have never had a divorce, a bankruptcy, an illness, a death? Um, a hospitalization, 
How, how many of you have not had one of those things in your life? And one person raised. Oh, my. So you had, you know, 490 something people, all of whom, because that's life, all of whom have had not just challenge, but great challenge in their lives. And I was really worried about that one gal who never had any challenge. <laughs> Be really careful in the parking lot. <laughs> You've beaten the odds. Um, but, but the fact is that that's life, as you know. And um, preparing kids with a toolbox of skills. And I think that's what COVID did. It made it apparent that a single skill set was just not enough. Um, and that this acceleration of change, which, look, it's not that long ago that the cell phone came out and everybody has a cell phone, not just here, but around the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the acceleration of technology and social media has really driven the pace of change. And so we're gonna to have to change with it. And, and I was doing, you'll be interested in this. I was doing some interesting reading on uh, uh, psychoneuroendocrinology. Um, before we got together. And I was looking- Yeah, say that at, three times fast. <laughs> <laughs> um, these are the fields that are so exciting now, you know? Um, and, and they talk about what has changed in the last three decades because we know anxiety is continuing to go up. By the way, for parents, just as much for kids. But anyway, they determined that the, the biological things that trip off your HPA, your- hypothalamus, pituitary, adrenal access mm -hmm. are unpredictability, novelty, threat, and low sense of control. Right. And so you have a perfect storm yeah. going on here. You have all of those things happening at once. And for various reasons, which we can talk about, I feel like kids are really poorly prepared to handle that kind of challenge. And that will continue. COVID's not over. It's not the last pandemic. You know, there, there have always been great disruptions, the world wars, the um, depression, there always have been. And for the most part, people survived them. And um, not without scars, but they did right, right. survive. And I, and you know, I'm Jewish, so people, I used to run groups for Holocaust, the kids of Holocaust survivors. What people can survive is mind boggling. Hmm. But, but you, what you find, as you know, is that the quality of the relationship with the parent matters more than anything else. So they can blitz London, right, during World War II. And they took some of those kids and took them out to the countryside. And they left some of them at home in shelters being bombed and the kids who did better were the kids with their parents. Hmm. And I, I think about that a lot because, you know, intuitively it makes me like, Ugh. I think the parents who opted to have their kids stay with them probably had a capacity for tolerating the distress of what was going on and felt they could be protective to their children. I have one story of a, a mom, the house gets bombed, the windows are blown out, her son's face is lacerated, she takes him to the ER and says to the ER doctor, we're so lucky, my husband is a carpenter, he's home replacing the windows. 
took that, you know, pervasive wow. optimism wow. that you and I wow. were talking about. Um, but that that may have been archetypal of the kind of person who stayed, kept their family tight. And, and we know that that is incredibly important. And I think one of the things that's, that's important for parents to know is at this point, the research says, and this is for all you moms and dads who had to work during COVID, that it didn't have to be a parent. It had to be a reliable adult who, who took care of our friend Tina Bryson's four S's, mm-hmm. safety, security, soothing, and seen. And so for all the parents who felt, oh, I was too busy, you know, if you had your child cared for by somebody who was a reliable, consistent, kind caretaker, just as good. Hmm. I'd love to dig in a couple of points of those. I, I wanted to make a quick note as, as well to, to parents who are listening. Uh, you share some data towards the end of the book about um, time that parents spend with kids and say that it really can be as few as six hours a week, so long as we're fully attentive. Um, so for everyone who may be feeling a little guilty that there's not, a, there's not enough, it may, be, it may be less than we, uh, than, than we realize. Um, to that, you know, you talk about in the book, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but since we're here, you talk about epigenetics. And, you know, one of the great researchers on this, Michael Meany, did all that research with rats, pup, rat pups, where they, they deliberately stressed them and they returned them to mom. And if mom was the high licking and grooming rat, you know, the, the, the soothing of, of Tina Payne Bryson's S, um, they ended up being these incredibly, you know, resilient, you know, courageous rats. I think they called them California laid back rats. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I know you're out there on the West Coast, right? And 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 you know, d- just to to give one more shout out to to our our pal uh, Tina Payne Bryson, that she makes the point that the model for developing emotional resilience is adversity plus support, mm-hmm. adversity plus support, and that was going on with those rats. And so I'd love you to dig in a little bit because you you talk about so that as as loving parents, we don't want to see our kids suffer we obviously want to protect them but we don't also didn't don't even want to see them in distress and by doing that we want are oftentimes preventing them or shielding them from protecting them from the very adversity that's part of that equation and then arguably by being too hyper vigilant too stressed out ourselves may not do the hottest job of, of that licking and grooming or, or soothing as, as tina, tina would describe it Right. And, um, you know, I've been practicing for a very long time. And when I started practice, there was no such thing as an emerging adulthood facility. (laughs) Like, no. And now I would say probably half the referrals I made this past year were for emerging adulthood facilities. And that's for kids. You know, they're usually at that point depressed or anxious or substance abusing, but they're basically kids who don't have life skills. And, and they come from, quote, air quotes, good families who have worked overtime at taking care of them. But I, I, I would like people to think about this a little bit differently. People have been writing about the writing reflex, that parents have a mm-hmm. writing reflex, mm-hmm. um, which is not quite what the writing reflex is. But anyway, we, we do want our kids to be happy. It's hard to see them being unhappy. But I think to the extent to which you interfere with normative developmental challenge, and I want to be clear about that. So it's not that you should 
have no point of view about your kid being assaulted or bullied or that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the kinds of things kids go through. And, and I think of that as robbery now Hmm. Um, that parent that instead of thinking I'm such a great parent because I'm doing this for my kid, that you're robbing the child of an experience which they may or may not have trouble handling, but the only way they will get to handle it is by in small doses. And, you know, I see it. I'm now a grandma. I got my second (laughs) grandchild. Congratulations. Thank you. You're going to be the best grandma. (laughs) I love it. It is so much easier. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I'm watching uh, my granddaughter learn to walk. And, Mm. you know, it's the old thing of she takes a few steps and she falls down and she takes a few steps and she falls down. And we're all like applauding, honey, get up. Good for Mm. you. And nobody is saying, nobody is, first of all, helping her to walk, you know, mm-hmm. moving her legs. And nobody is saying to her, you don't learn how to walk. You're going to be flipping burgers the rest of your life. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, so, you know, that's a small example of where we don't have a lot of trouble tolerating. Because sometimes they fall. I, I bought my granddaughter a bicycle for her third birthday yesterday. And she got on it and immediately proceeded to fall and mm-hmm. skin her knee. Made me think of Wendy Mogul's Blessing of a Skin Knee. Yep. But nobody gets excited. First time on a bike, you're going to fall. And the only way she's going to learn to walk or to ride that bike is by getting on it and having people around her, encouraging her. Um, If she gets really hurt, obviously you do something, but the normal skin knee, get up again, honey, I know you can do it. Give it another try, right? You can always come in if the kid falls apart or can't do it. But I think we come in way too early into the ZPD, the zone Mm -hmm. of proximal development, which is where all the action is. If the kid can already do it, they don't need you. And if so it's- Can beyond, you pause and explain explain that to folks? Because it's a great, it's a, it's a, I um, knew that concept that I didn't know that term. Uh, and I think it can stick sure. in people's heads. I think it's lovely, lovely to share that okay. with them. So zone of proximal development comes mostly from education. And it means the area between what your child can do competently and what they cannot do at all. So there's that learning zone in between, and we call it proximal, almost, development. So like the example I just gave you of learning to ride a bike, she doesn't know how to do it. She will learn to do it in that gray zone. And we're keeping eyes on her. We're making sure she's not going into the road or Mm -hmm. she's got a helmet on. Um, And I think that's where all the action takes place in learning is it's boring to do what you already know how to do, right? Um, and if you can't do it at all, then then you're hopeless about the task. But, you know, it's like Carol Dweck's work mm-hmm. about kids. She takes all these kids, four-year-olds, and does a baseline study and then puts half of them in a room with puzzles and tells them how smart they are and how talented they are. And, they're, you know, they're geniuses and the other group goes in with nothing, right? Just go play. And of course, it's the other group that learns more, is more interested, is more curious, because if you if your expectations are up here, kids tend to be hesitant about trying new things because they don't want to lose the 
the love. So I think the love, it's very easy for parents to give the love in the, wow, you got an A on your test or wow, you made the select team or whatever. But I think we need to do more of it in the zone of, I think you can do this. You've got this, give it a try. As opposed to, and I'm as guilty as anybody of this. My kids had pointed out to me when they were young, they'd come home from school and I'd say reflexively, is everything okay? Every day, is everything okay? Because unlike you, I am. I don't lead with optimism. <laughs> and, you, can, you can ask my children that they may have a different version of the story than I tell. Uh, <laughs> but it, but I think we need to show enthusiasm for that yeah. learning process, um, and and allow kids to borrow our calm when things are not going well. Right, um, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and and I love later later in the book you talk about um, uh, rather than failure about trial and error and 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 which I think is just so so terrific and gosh it seems like we can work trial and error in at the earliest possible age you know right. wait, you know two years old you can begin they can grasp that concept right. Um, right. I'm, that's <laughs> right out of the military by the way mm-hmm. that's the, which is why I wanted like how do other people see this and. I thought that was a great example of they don't use the word failure. You know, you're learning. It's trial and error. Yeah. Feedback. There's a, a two quotes come to mind. Uh, Ken Blanchard, is a success coach in the 70s, said that feedback is the breakfast of champions. <laughs> and, I, and I ran this one by my daughter last night who was frustrated with some, some assignment. Uh, uh, but Francis Bacon said that truth emerges more readily from error than from confusion. Uh, and, and I love you talk about in the book about how people can be paralyzed by indecision, by uncertainty, mm-hmm. right? And then they don't do anything where if you're the military, well, you know, what was the 40, 70? If you had 40% of the information and if you can't make a decision, but if you, if you have 70, you should move on because if you, if you wait for more than that, you're going to miss your, your opportunity. Right. And, I, you know, I learned that in a really interesting way. I was once um, at a conference with Stan McChrystal and a bunch of young CEOs, really young and, you know, in their thirties, babies. <laughs> they, it was a team building exercise and I had no idea what they were doing. It was kind of, I don't know, algorithm. What it, my job was to correct their spelling that real truthfully, <laughs> that's what it was. And they were in competition with each other. And at a certain point they would say, we got it whatever the algorithm was. And I would say, you don't have it. You know, you're, you're partway there. You PhD, it's like you have to have the facts. <laughs> and they thought I was hysterically funny and obviously very elderly because they were like, it's good enough. If it's not right, we'll go back and fix it again and again. And it, for me, that was an incredible learning experience that I think some young people do have who were mm. taught that, to learn from failure, to embrace failure. And, and the dilemma, Ned, is, look, you're a parent. I, I am. I raised three boys. Um, to tell a parent, you know what? Have your kid fail. You know, it's really good for them to have them fail. It just feels crappy. I mean, it's like no parent wants to wake up and say, how can I make my child fail today? You know, you don't need to make them fail. Real life will bring enough challenges for yeah yeah thanks for listening to prep talks today's episode is sponsored by the book what do you say 
how to talk with kids to build motivation, stress tolerance, and a happy home. The authors Dr. William Stixrude and Ned Johnson have 60 years combined experience talking to kids one-on-one, and in their latest book, they share new ways to handle specific and thorny topics. Things like delivering constructive feedback to kids, discussing boundaries around technology, anxiety from current events, and more. What Do You Say is a manual and a map that provides specific, science-based guidance for communicating effectively with children, teens, and young adults about the topics that matter most. Well, I am I'm really grateful that I had read enough of you know, your work, Carol Dweck's work, you know, Tina Payne Bryson, you know, in the process of writing The Self-Driven Child when my son was in just, just beginning oh, middle school. Book? Oh, you're so kind. <laughs> People can't right. see it. She's... I keep it right next to me, <laughs> literally. And, uh, and, and we talk about being a consultant, not a manager. And my, my kid, who's now 19, um, you know, is ADHD and, you know, kind of, you know, air quotes, typical boy. And there's a story in the book where he was, uh, oh gosh, he was, there was some assignment. My wife, who's this very serious academic and not PhD, but she'd be closer to you than I am. Uh, and some assignment was missing. It wasn't handed in, whatever it was. And she, at a, why, why didn't you hand it in? And he hadn't replied because you didn't, you didn't remind me. And then we're sort of off to the races. But we, we then made this real concerted effort to, guide, to, to be consultants, right, rather than managers and being, it's okay, because goodness, if he's going to screw this up, let's screw it up in middle school now. and let him write and let him learn from this, right? And he rewarded us with things like 52s on test because he studied <laughs> uh, the wrong chapter, dad. I think I studied, oh, so, okay. And, you know, but now that he's off to college, right? You know, we, we had such confidence that he was going to be able to handle college and handle life right. because we were there to help, but not not acting like it was our job to to, to get the A's or to, to really to do anything, but, but to offer help. Um, because one of the messages that's so important is, about anxiety and success. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're right. Nobody wants like, let's go have our kid fail. That was a total <laughs> face plan. Woo-hoo! Right? That's, we're not wired that way. Right. But can you talk about the wiring that's created when it's success all the time and, and what that, what, what the relationship with anxiety? Sure. So the, those were the kids I probably saw for a decade period. That's all I saw in my office with these. Mm. That was the price of privilege. Really high achieving kids um, who came from terrific families in the sense of both parents were there and involved, um, but they would do incredibly stupid things. Like one of the kids had a drunk driving uh, thing and Mm -hmm. the parents come and it's like, we want to get a lawyer. And I'm like, why? There go the natural consequences. Yeah, no, right. And um, that was that was a really typical case. And and again, you know, you know me, I'm a storyteller. So so (laughs) how we learn. It's how we learn. And and it's very hard to do. So my oldest son, Lauren, is 18. He has an 18th birthday party with his best friend. The house is cleared of all alcohol. The cabinets are locked. There's no way to get to anything. These are kids I've known my whole life from kindergarten in Marin when we lived in Marin. I go upstairs. My husband's in Tahoe. I watch SNL and I go to sleep. And somewhere in the middle of the night, I'm awoken by every emergency vehicle in (laughs) Marin County. 
everybody oh, had the lights going off and the siren, and they were all in my driveway. Oh, goodness. So the EMT, the fire department, um, the police department, and the sheriff department. What happened? One of the kids, you know, they weren't big drinkers. One of the kids drank a lot and had a panic attack. So instead of getting mom, who's a psychologist, to help this kid, they called 911. And it was a disaster. I, I was cited, um, <sighs> illegally cited, but I was cited. It, it would have impacted my license. No kidding. The cops had the kid. It was very upsetting for me because uh, my dad's, I come from a cop family. Yeah. And oh. this the mistakes were one after another. Like they sent the kids home driving and they were incredibly harsh with me. And so I, so I got this citation, which would have impacted my license. Now it would have been really easy to say, you know, this was all the cops fault and what, but I didn't as hard as it was. And my son had to come with me cause I needed a criminal defense lawyer. He had to come with me to every four uh, meetings and he had to pay for half of it. Hmm. And, and I am sure that if you asked him now what that experience was like, he would tell you it was the right thing to do. He's a lawyer himself now. I, I got two out of three lawyers, but um, the decision to make him pay the consequences, which were quite substantial at that point, yeah. was really hard. And the parent who says, I'm getting a lawyer because a drunk driving charge will ruin his chances for crew at Cal. I get it. It's still the wrong choice because yeah. drunk driving can kill somebody. And it's not just about you and your child. It's about the sense of morals and values that are communicated by saying, I'm going to get you off of this with no consequence. So, and then those, and those lessons then of how do I make amends? How do I, how do I correct this? How do I make up to my mom for that, that really, you know, in hindsight, pretty terrible decision rather than how do I evade responsibility? Right. That, and that responsibilities avoidable. I mean, there was a terrible, mm -hmm. there was a terrible um, thing in Marin County where there was some cheating at one of the fancy private schools. Um, and all of the kids SAT scores were thrown out all of them, the entire class mm. was the last SAT of the mm -hmm. year. And the father of one of the kids and um, I have no trouble talking about this because I think it's emblematic threatened to bankrupt the school if they made a case against the couple kids who everybody knew who the cheating kids were. And wow. so all these kids, 60 kids, 70 kids, scores were thrown out. Months of testing, prepping, yeah, yeah, yeah. getting ready, got thrown out. And so what's the lesson in there? The, the lesson is like varsity blues scandal. You know, mm -hmm. you have enough money, have enough power, screw people, you don't play by the rules. And it's it's an awful message for kids who don't have that prefrontal uh, cortex to inhibit bad behavior yet. Hmm. So, you know, and I call in the book, I call it accumulated disability. You keep doing that to your kid. You keep intervening where um, they should be able to learn and you end up with a disabled, anxious, angry kid. I mean, hmm. you know, it's as clear, that's as clear as day to me. 
Yeah, that was, I loved that concept. I hadn't, is, was, is that your creation or, did, okay, yeah, I really, I really like that because, um, well, it seems to me that we tend to think of lessons that we give to kids or sort of particularly moral or ethical ones are going to be these big moments when we sit down and, and you know, give some, uh, you know, Robin Williams kind of speech and, and, and we'll, it'll, it'll kind of blow their minds and change as opposed to, well, who's that Aristotle says we are what we repeatedly do. And so this idea of it's just accumulated bit by bit by bit. Right. And, and also, I think often with the best of intentions, people aren't aware enough of what's going on around them. Look, you know, three kids, a career, a surgeon husband who was gone a lot of the time, a mother with Alzheimer's. It was a busy time for me. And so you're not paying attention all the time and you're not doing your best all the time. And, and I want to say, especially now through COVID, that's, that's to be expected. I think people's expectations of what should be happening through this period of time in their families is nuts, to tell you the truth. So, you know, we all started out with lists, exercise, you know, organize your books. Learn eat a foreign well. language, right? Anyway. Right, right. You know, mine was, you can't see my office. Mine was to organize my books and um, <laughs> nothing, nothing. So that was all, you know, like top down stuff, right? Do yeah. this, do that. And I said at the very beginning of COVID, Ned, I gave a bunch of talks like all of us. And it was like, if you can get through this with your family reasonably intact, that's your goal. Period. And in the beginning, I got a lot of blowback. Oh, Dr. Levine, that's such a low bar. You know, should we? Blow? Now, now I get no blowback on that because if you manage to get through this reasonably intact, you've done a good job. And so I never want to sound like I'm saying to parents, oh, here's another thing that mm. you should be doing. Because mm -hmm. um, I'm pretty sympathetic with what parents have gone through um, in this. But I think these things become habits. You know, if you stop, what, what was your test score? What was your test score? Um, how are you doing? Were you invited? Did you make the team? If that's the first thing you greet your kids with, it doesn't matter that you say, oh, it's not important to me, right? I used to go mm -hmm. to people's houses for dinner. People who would say to me, and I think this is true for some parents, it's not me. I'm not doing it. I'm not talking about their grades or their college. And so I used to go to dinner a couple of times, see what's going on in the family. And they were right. They didn't say, what are your grades? But what they did say is, did you see the Ferrari that so-and-so down the block got? Or did you know so-and-so is uh, working for Goldman Sachs? It was all around that same performance-based materialistic vision of what it takes to be successful. And it's just not true. It's just not true, Ned. It's a myth. <laughs> it, the, the, you know, you mentioned challenge success. So Denise Pope's my co-founder, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Harvard, Stanford, Stanford, Harvard, Stanford, State University of New York at Buffalo. And, and we speak together a lot, you know, and, and it's like, here's living proof, right? For her, it was great. I had no money. My father died young. It was just a different story and the people that i interviewed for the book like practice there there are a few um i do a slide how many of you went straight to the top got great grades went to a great college you know did exactly what you want and no matter where i am the group of people that did that is one to ten percent it's so 
predictable that now it's on the slide. I used to write it for each place. That means 90 to 99% of us wiggled around and, you know, tried to figure out what we wanted to do. And it wasn't, and we didn't have to go to any particular school, but we did have to learn from our experiences. Yeah, I love that page where you have the picture of the people can't see them, you know, so this 45 degree, you know, straight line from one corner of a square to the other. And then another one that looks like it's something out of the family circus when, when Billy's trying to find his way. Right? <laughs> right. Wiggle, 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 wiggle. Right. And, and can you just talk about that a little bit more of why that is so, why it's important and, and frankly, the, the parental inclination to try to keep kids on the straight and narrow as opposed to letting them wiggle? Well, you know, we're, we're scared as parents. Um, it used to be a given that your children would do better than you did. I was talking to my mm. husband last night. My grandparents were bricklayers and glaziers, and my dad was a cop, and I'm a psychologist and my husband's a physician. It was just a given that that was mm -hmm. the trajectory. That's not given at all anymore. Um, now, how important is that if our kids don't uh, make as much money or um, have as many degrees as we do? I, you know, it's 40 years. It's actually not 35. We're closing on 40 years. <laughs> this business just makes me sound like a dinosaur. And um, makes you sound very uh, acquired wisdom is what it makes you wise. sound like. Yeah, everybody's saying I'm wise now. <laughs> um, and I can tell you, and it's really hard to get to get this translated well. My kids are grown up. They do work they like. They're in relationships that are healthy. Mm. Uh, they're good people. They are of service in their respective field. That's it. I don't care where they, they nobody went to an Ivy League school. They, nobody asks them where they went to school anymore. Nobody certainly asks them what was their social studies grade in the fourth grade or anything. So the end game, the end game is very different. If, if what you want, if you think it's a good idea at if you take a 30 year time span, not a, not, a, not a snapshot. The snapshot can look great if it's a good moment in time, it can look shitty if it's a bad moment in yeah. time, but you take the movie of your kids and take a look at it. And those are the things that hmm. will matter to you. Hmm. I love that I live snapshot versus movie, because if you take any of us that are at our worst possible moments, right, it doesn't look so hot. Thank you, Instagram. Um, but, <laughs> but, but, you know, but every great movie, whether it's an epic adventure or love story, you know, there, there have to be moments where thing, you know, the, 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 things look dark, right, you know, and, and people are upset or people are afraid. Because um, you know this better than I as a psychologist, it, it's dealing with that. We're back to that adversity and support. Um, I was like, thank you for sharing, by the way, about the SUNY Buffalo. I have a, a, a dear friend, Bill, and I have this dear friend who, who is, in my view, the best college counselor in the known universe, who went to SUNY Albany and, and then had gone to an undergraduate. She got her master's and her PhD and an undergrad of some school. I, I don't even can't recall if it even still exists. And she is one of the wisest people I know on this planet. And she says, she says, you know, I'm 40 years as a college counselor. And I, I say this to people and nobody really believes me, but it's this. Whom you marry, if you choose to marry, 
matters so much more than where you go to college. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. so, and so one of the things you also talk about in the book is, and I want to pivot into this, that, that, that um, we've seen all that literature on kids today because they're anxious, that they're delaying, they're, de- you know, they're delaying getting their driver's license. They're all these kind of, these kind of liminal stages that we're, we're, we're kind of supposed to cross as we go into adulthood, that they're also putting off relationships mm-hmm. and re- the skills of relationships are just as important. I mean, and, and take just as much effort, right. As everything else mm-hmm. you introduce this idea of the audience and social media. And I, and I never thought about this and it, oh, it blew my mind. Can you walk us through that? Cause boy, oh boy, oh boy, was that a, a useful framing of, of an additional challenge to young people in relationships. Right. So um, developmentally, teenagers always have an audience, right? They're mm. all, you know, the zit on their face. What, what if is going on? I think what people forget about adolescence is there are so many jobs that need to be mastered. Yes, you have to learn geometry. You also have to learn how to walk down the hall with your new body and not bang into the walls. You have to learn how to talk to a girl or a boy, somebody you've never talked to before. You have to learn what to, you know, how to get undressed in gym class when you're prepubertal and there are other guys who are the size of men around. I mean, there's right. just a million. Right. Um, and we were, it's called the reminiscence bump. We remember, uh, if you ask an audience, tell me a memory you have, the vast majority of them will give you a memory from adolescence that and we call it the reminiscence bump because mm. it had so much to do with the sense of identity. So just uh, as an aside, but this kid who talks about the audience, so I'm saying adolescence is about having an audience to start with. And then this young man was interested in this girl and they're going back and forth. And he, I can't remember, he's like 13. And um, he decides he's going to stop because he's aware as most kids are, that he's not just sending things to her. She's got all of her Instagram friends and they're all looking at what he writes and he's not good at it yet because he's 13. So he's clumsy and awkward. And and so he gets mocked and he, I got to hand it to this kid. He decided against using social media and against this relationship because he didn't want to feel criticized all the time. That's exactly the place where historically we would need to be soft and encouraging and guiding, right? And instead, it was a a critical audience, which is what social media is most of the time. Um, And so now, now his development's delayed, right? He should be learning how to talk to a girl. Mm-hmm. He's going, uh-uh, too many people looking at what I'm saying. I'm not doing it. So maybe next year he'll do it. Or, and maybe the same thing will happen next year and it'll get put off. I'm, mm. I'm not a big fan of what uh, social media has done to kids. Yeah, no, it was, I, it was, it was, <laughs> I love to talk about that for a moment. It it felt like, like a through line, but not, um, not necessarily sort of called on in a chapter, uh, a lot to say about Silicon Valley and what they, and what they are, have done or are doing to um, the world in which our kids are growing up. So, you know, one of the most distressing experiences in doing this, most of it was really fun, but when I was 
speaking to the head researcher at um, former head of research at Google. And I was talking to him, I got to spend the day down there and spend a lot of time with him. And I was talking about, you know, I'm a researcher and a writer. I use Google all the time. It's invaluable. I couldn't do my work without it. I said, but you know, what do you think about the fact that you carry instructions for self-mutilation, which anybody can access easily. And I had, Ned, I had never gone on any of these sites thinking I'd be upset. So for this book, I did go on oh the sites and they are literal. Um, they're not reproductions, they're not anything. You can see a girl take a razor and talk about how you are more likely to bleed out if you cut uh, vertically than horizontally, which is true. And it's a real person and she's 12 and she's <sighs> teaching another 12 year old. So I asked him, you know, how do you feel about that? And I, th I thought his answer was, you know, pretty revealing. He said, my daughter would never do that. Well, duh, you have no idea what your daughter is going to do when she's 12. You, you're making this available. And it doesn't have to be her. What if the girl next door is watching it and teaches your daughter how to, like, what's your social responsibility here? Mm. And I could not get an answer. Um, now, there, there are people who have come out since then, and I'm blocking on the guy's name. They did a movie about Silicon Valley. Oh, with um, Tristan Harrison and the uh, um, right. um, Social Dilemma. dilemma yeah. Right. Oh, he's so, a lovely thinker. Yeah. So things are coming out about it. But in gen I went to another thing, um, Harvard getting together with like neuro designer babies, you know, this kind oh, of technology okay. they can use in medicine. And somebody in the audience asked the same question, like, who is this for? This was about designer babies, you know? Um, it's only the rich and are they gonna replicate themselves and what happens to the rest mm. of the world? It's an invitation to think about unforeseen consequences. And the answer from this Harvard guy was, don't ask me, go talk to an ethicist. <sighs> and, and, Here's the thing. Here's the thing that it left us, Ned. The thing that it left us was the idea is not to have a course in business ethics. The mm -hmm. idea is to, I think, is to carry this through from day one education, so that you don't end up with somebody creating things that are damaging and and passing it off on somebody else. Yes, an ethicist may have a more in-depth understanding of it, but if you're making it, you better have some idea of what you're making and what the hmm. implications are. So I when, found this kind of just blowing off to, you know, go talk to those kind of softy people in the ethics department hmm. about these things. Well, it's interesting that, you know, I, I really appreciated that is really a through line in the book of not just, well, I mean, obviously you're talking about, you know, parents and anxiety and, and children with anxiety and, and how we can do so much better and what behavior we, and we, we start, we do less of this and do more of that. 
And then these, you talk about foundational skills that we really know kids are going to need, be, you know, beyond math and coding, these skills that they're going to need to be truly successful in life of, of, of collaboration and, and interpersonal skills. But this point about ethical behavior is not one that I've read in books like yours before. And I really appreciated it because it seems to me if we fundamentally want to have our kids to have lives that are happy, they need to have relationships that are healthy, right? And if we want to have, if we want a society that's healthy, that's happy, we, we need this ethical strain. And I love towards the end of the book when you, you know, Robert Putnam and um, Bowling Alone and our, and our ch ch child, um, our kids. Um, and because you, if I may, if I'm going to read this line, because I just so enjoyed this, you said, nothing we teach our children will be more fundamental to an optimistic future than ethical values based on respect and concern for our, ourselves, for others, and for our planet. The only thing that can come close to guaranteeing a safe future for our children is a society grounded in such values. That's really, really good. And I wish, oh, I mean, well, you know, and, and to your point about, you know, for all of us, for the, for the, I mean, I love that, you know, you, you, you talk about family systems and business and the military and all the way through, it just seems to me that if we if we want this happier, healthy, more optimistic world for our children, this to your point, this isn't a, 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 a business ethics class that's kind of a tag along, you know, a throwaway class. We have to win this through, you know, the, the, our, our lives, you know, at every possible moment. Right. And I, I want to tell you something. When I saw a lot of kids in my backyard. You can't see my backyard, but I have a little backyard. And <clears throat> throughout COVID, I had a string of teenagers masked at six feet in the backyard. And um, depressed, anxious, drinking too much, smoking too much dope, whatever. And the most useful thing I found with these kids was I put together a list of things they could do, right? Mm. So service, like go over to uh, call the JCC, call Christian services, call uh, Meals on Wheels, call any of the things that people are needing desperately now. And hmm. do it. And and like all my other stuff about deep breathing and meditation, and, you know, some some of it stuck, some of it didn't. But all of these kids went and understood that there was something really to be gained by being of service. Hmm. And I don't think we ask anywhere near enough of our kids in terms of being service of being of service to other people, um, because it helps other people, but it also pays dividends for the person who is being of service. And, mm. and I thought it was interesting that, you know, they had parents and they had priests and rabbis and nobody was saying, you know, come on. I, yeah, it's a tough time. Everybody's having a tough time. I get it, you know, but go do something to be helpful. And, mm. you know, that was my best intervention for mm. a year and a half. You talk in the book, and uh, uh, you talk in the book about learned helplessness and and that that accumulated disability, uh, and it, it seemed what you just described there is is rather than having helping kids learn helplessness, we can learn them learn helpfulness. Right. Nice, I like that. Can I use that? <laughs> you, uh, by all means, by all means, you are talking to so many people and sharing so much wisdom. So, uh, by but all you means, know, you know what? I just realized as you said that that. Probably the reason that it's successful is that it gives kids some sense of control. 
Oh, um, goodness. And you talk about, you know, the, the wonderful research of Martin Seligman yeah. and the, the model for happiness, right, of PERMA includes meaning, right? And, and we, we know that if you give people a hundred bucks and say, will you spend on yourself or give to someone else? People think they'll feel better when they spend it on themselves. But when you, when you touch base a week later, the people who gave the money to someone else right. are always happier, right. are always happier. Oh, my gosh. I... <laughs> I love I, the, I, sorry, go ahead. I have one more point. I'm just thinking sure. about, the, yeah, 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 about yeah. our discussion. And yeah. that, that's about confidence. Because mm. um, if you're going to let your kid fall and it makes excessive approximations towards being capable, they have to have enough confidence in themselves to get up again and try again. Yeah. And like the, the development of confidence is not, you know, I'm not an expert on it, but, but I'm thinking like when I told you almost everybody I spoke to had failed at something or another, I was a teacher. I was a terrible teacher. I really huh. was. No, I was, I'm not a good disciplinarian anyway, but I was a terrible teacher. But what I was good at was going home with a kid after school. I was teaching inner city in the South Bronx of New York, sitting mm. around a table with the kid and the mom and trying to figure out a way to get this kid out of the hood and educated. Because if you, in my day, if a kid came with books, they would get taunted and beat yeah, up yeah, and stuff yeah. like that. So I was good at that and I was terrible at teaching. And, you know, it's my own, I guess, personal example of, oh, I really failed at something. I was not good at it, but it didn't undo me. And I think it's because I had enough confidence and there was something else to replace it. Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. people's idea of building confidence when they keep telling kids how great they are. I mean, you have kids, you know, yeah, 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 you yeah. are totally tuned out after, you know, the eight million. Oh, that's terrific. <laughs> um, and and what really builds confidence is letting kids make those successive approximations until, in fact, they do become confident at it. And what I and I, I love that. And if I put one point on that for anyone who's listening, it wasn't that they have to be the best and they don't have to be excellent. They have to get a sixteen hundred on the SAT or a GPA four point or go to Stanford, even though those are all lovely things. I'm not opposed to them. It's that they because when we look at them, the. the <laughs> <laughs> two things when the, the model of, of intrinsic motivation is competency you know relatedness and autonomy not excellence relatedness mm -hmm. and autonomy right mm -hmm. and um because you talked of in, in the book so much about learned helplessness you probably know that that um learned helplessness at 50 that michael that uh, uh steve mayer and and uh, martin seligman he said that kind of what do we get right and what do we get wrong and he, they, one of the points they make is it wasn't fully that the, these, in this case, animals learned helplessness, but rather that they failed to learn a sense of control. Right, right. And right. so we're back to your, 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 we're theft, right? When we, we, we deprive kids of those, those foundational experiences too. And it's also because those experiences are anxiety provoking for the parent. And we're anxious ourselves. So your kid comes and says, the dog barked at me and I'm afraid they're gonna bite me and I don't wanna go there anymore. And you have two choices or three choices. You get to say, you're right, that's a scary dog and we're not gonna walk, we're gonna go the other way. Or you get to say, you know, suck it up and mm -hmm. been there for 20 years and never hurt anybody. Or, you know, you get to say, I understand it's scary for you, but that dog's been here. Would you like me to walk with you a couple of times to feel more comfortable? Hmm. And 
I, I think the reason that parents often choose will avoid it is because it, if my own kid is anxious, that makes me anxious. So I short term avoid the anxiety by avoiding the situation. Hmm. Long term, I cultivate the anxiety. That's such an important point, and I think one that that a lot of people, if they don't, you know, know what you know, um, just don't just don't appreciate. And and because <laughs> because because we're trying to help children develop in ways that will make them happy and secure long-term short-term distress is part of that part of that process absolutely you know for the parent who says and there are many i can't stand to see my child unhappy my response is always and you're in the wrong business (laughs) in in our in our book a parent said it it kills me to wait watch him waste so much time and i said here's my advice don't watch (laughs) (laughs) exactly uh, well, Madeline, Dr. Madeline Levine, ready or not, preparing our kids to thrive in an uncertain and rapidly changing world. Um, for, for those of folks who are listening, you probably have a lot of books uh, that, that offer terrific advice on how to, how to help your kids be successful and stress tolerant as they can possibly be. But this is one that if it's not on that uh, nightstand yet, it certainly should be. Thank you for spending time with me. I just I love the way you think and I love this book. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Prep Talks. Please subscribe to us for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.